0: I want to invite you to take your Bibles, or the church Bible, whichever is convenient for you, and turn in the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Before we read together today's text of Scripture, I want to remind you that among God's purposes in ordaining the preacher... To preach biblical truth is this purpose. Well, actually, three I can think of, though there are more. The preaching of God's word is to humble the pride of man, to exalt the grace of God in salvation, And to promote real holiness in heart and life. Now there's an assignment that by God's grace I have taken very seriously now for more than 30 years of preaching. To humble the pride of man, to exalt the grace of God in salvation, and to promote real holiness in heart and life. Therefore, let us pray. Father, you've taught us that there is the real possibility that we may hear the words of Holy Scripture, but fail to experience the fruit of it in our lives. In this gathering, this very morning, no doubt, there are hearts Which are representative of the various kinds of soil upon which the precious seed of your truth will fall. Some hearts are like a hard beaten path, and the seed is trampled underfoot. There's the hearts of stony ground where the truth fails to take any firm root in those lives. There's the thorny way of life's worries and pursuits of worldly pleasure and riches which tragically choke out what would be the greater pleasures of embracing the truth which sets us free. Lord Jesus, you spoke of good soil that bears abundant fruit and we need that. We need you to break up the fallow ground of our stony, thorn-infested hearts. We plead our only hope, that inward working of your Holy Spirit, to convict, to gift us with genuine repentance, and to make us thirsty for the living water. We ask this for the greater honor of Christ and in his name. Amen. Verse 18, beginning at verse 18 of 1 Peter 3, reading through to the end of this chapter. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which also... He, that is Christ, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Beloved, it was on the first Sunday in January, now more than six months ago, that we began this series of studies in the Apostles' letter, 1 Peter, and I knew then that this day would come. I know that you are an astute congregation and you would notice If I tried to bypass the verses we just read and somehow moved right into chapter 4. I can tell you that one of the finest biblical scholars on Peter's epistles is a Dr. Peter H. Davids. I have turned with great benefit to his commentary on a number of occasions in the preparation of my sermons. He has been most helpful to me. So, I eagerly referenced his findings on... These particular verses, and among his first words, were these, and I quote, The minute one encounters Peter's phrase, verse 19, that Christ made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, That one who encounters it, Dr. Davids said, is immediately aware that this passage is exceedingly difficult. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Davids. Now, one of the first and most important tasks for every student of the Bible, and that is meant to be every true believer, is to learn to ask questions of any particular text of Scripture or any verse, and allow that text to speak for itself. It is just as important, especially when dealing with a somewhat mysterious text like ours, to ask the same questions that the text raises of the rest of Scripture, what the rest of Scripture has to say on the same subject. You see, far more crucial than asking the question, what does it mean to me, is to first ask the question, what does the text actually say, what does the rest of the Bible say? That is the vital interpretive principle that we are to always compare Scripture with Scripture because no single text or verse of Scripture will contradict another. The integrity of the Word of God is that it really is one unified statement of truth, both Old Testament and New, so that one verse's meaning, is often revealed, at least clarified, by another verse's statement of truth. Or as some have said so wisely, the Bible is its own interpreter. Now having said that, and while much of the Bible as a whole can be understood by a child, It is also true that certain things in the scriptures are not always abundantly clear. And there is even a verse for that. And quite ironically, the one who gives us that text is also the Apostle Peter. Now, hold your place and turn to his second letter. That's right. It's right after first Peter. You'll find second Peter. Go quickly to chapter 3. I want you to see this. 2 Peter 3. And as you're turning, let me give a context here by asking a question of you. Have you ever wondered why there are so many different views concerning the last days and the second coming? Of Christ, You do acknowledge, don't you, that even among the most faithful of believers and faithful Bible scholars, historically there are varying points of view about how to understand the last days and the second coming of Christ. I want you to note how the Apostle Peter is describing how the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You'll see that in verse 10. Or how the heavens, he says, will burn up and the elements of the earth will melt with fervent heat. He says that in verse 12. In this context of eschatology, now that's a big word that simply is describing a branch of theology which has to do with the doctrine of last things. And so includes the second coming of Christ. Peter says this about Paul's eschatological passages of Scripture. His writings, which address the last days and second coming of Christ. Peter is going to comment on Paul's writings concerning difficult passages of Scripture. Look at verse 15. You're in 2 Peter 3 and now verse 15, where Peter says... Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters. So he's saying, in all of Paul's epistles, now look what Peter says, speaking in them of these things, eschatology, in which... Some things hard to understand. I think, wow, if another apostle, right, has difficulty understanding some things that another apostle has written, I sometimes wonder what hope is there for me. Peter goes on to say, in those few areas where the scriptures are hard to understand, this is what tends to happen. He says the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. I can tell you as a fact, some 2,000 years after Peter's commentary on Paul's writings concerning last things, that's exactly what has happened. Not all of the differing views concerning the meaning of the last days and the second coming of Christ are responsible interpretations. And he says some who just don't study enough, the untaught and the unstable, tend instead to distort the scriptures to do so anytime is to do so bringing harm to your soul, their own destruction, he says. So, will we agree here, before we've even gotten to our text, there are some things hard to understand that Paul writes, says Peter. But now I want you to come back to our text, and what do you know? I would say Paul has nothing on Peter himself. Talk about a hard-to-understand passage in the Bible I tell you it is 1 Peter chapter 3, 19 through 21. Or how about when we get to 1 Peter 4 and verse 6? I don't know, that might be another six months away. But there he says, the gospel has been preached even to those who are dead. What on earth does that mean? I have no idea yet. Maybe I will by the time we get to chapter 4. But what I'm saying to you is that right now I cannot be dogmatically confident about all the meaning of our verses today. Remember, the place to begin is by asking questions of the text itself and then to compare Scripture with Scripture. So look at verse 19. Here are some questions. Where are these spirits in prison? Rather, who are they? Where is the prison? When did Christ speak to them? And what did he say? What was the message? What was the proclamation he made to these spirits now in prison? Peter's writing about. And then verse 20. Doesn't seem to help that much. What has Noah got to do with all of this. And then verse 21. And why does Peter bring up the matter of our baptism? And he seems to say, no, he actually says that baptism saves. Another of the biblical scholars had said there is probably no more agreement about its exegesis, that is the interpretation of, Of these verses now than there ever has been. Folks, that's 2,000 plus years of Bible study. And this is one of only a few places in Scripture that we can say this is hard to understand. There's a church right up the street from our church. And they will tell you that you are not saved, nor can you be guaranteed a place in heaven unless you are baptized. I think they're all wet. There is the cult across the street from our front door. And the Jehovah Witnesses teach that Unless you are baptized into the Kingdom Hall Fellowship, then you are most certainly lost. In fact, they refer to themselves as the only ark available today, a safe refuge. They preach judgment and they say to escape it, you must be baptized into the Jehovah Witness Fellowship. And then, of course, there are the Mormons. I had a lady in my church in New Jersey that I had to counsel over an extensive period of time because she had been called upon uh, by the Mormons knocking on the doors. And uh, I didn't even know it was happening. And she got herself into a Bible study. And then she called me one day and she said, They want me there in the Mormon Bible study. They told me and they want me to be baptized, pastor, for my husband. I said, Marie, your husband's been dead for 15 years. And of course, we ensued to teach her more of the scriptures and sought to rescue her from the error of the untaught. Now, at the same time, I had to deal with Marie concerning what it says in 1 Corinthians 15.29. I don't want you to take the time to turn there. But there the Apostle Paul, I think, unwittingly gave them, the Mormons, their proof text. 1 Corinthians 15.29, when giving arguments for the doctrine of Christ's bodily resurrection, says this. If Christ is not raised from the dead, he says, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? So if I don't agree with the Mormon doctrine, what does that mean? I have no idea. Actually, I do have some ideas, but I can't know for sure which, if any of my ideas are absolutely correct. I plan on asking the Apostle Paul and Peter exactly what they were talking about and why did they make my preaching so difficult at times. For surely the Spirit of God who gave them the words in the first place has also by now explained it fully to them the meaning and the purpose of those words. I decided this would be a good Lord's Day to make a confession. Your pastor's confession this week is, I often find myself teaching you much more than I actually know. And I would confess as well, I'm always preaching you more than I actually practice. If you were to say to me on any given day, preacher, pastor, you ought to practice what you preach. I'd say a hearty amen and then I'd ask for God's grace to help me do that, to help you do that. Well, what are we to do in these rare cases of hard to understand portions of God's precious word? we most certainly will not just throw up our hands and skip over it. I probably would prefer to preach John 3.16 today than to preach 1 Peter 3 and verse 19. But to ignore any portion of Scripture is to do so in our own peril, and we would dishonor the Bible's author as well. Let me ask, how much of Scripture is profitable for doctrine, which means truth? How much of the Scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness? How much of Scripture is required to thoroughly furnish us unto every good work, says Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. You know the answer. I saw some of you moving your mouth with the answer. How much Scripture? All script. Oh, I guess that includes 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 19. Now to the text. Here we go. On this matter of our Lord going and making, quote, a proclamation to the spirits now in prison, perhaps it is those who were disobedient during the Years of construction of Noah's ark, a period of judgment warning. And by the way, it took 120 years or so for Noah to build that boat. There was all that time, you see, for fallen sinners to repent. But Peter reminds us, we read it, that only eight people were redeemed from the floodwaters of judgment. And so I ask a question for which I do not have a dogmatic answer. Did Jesus, by His Spirit, between the cross and the resurrection, did He perhaps then descend to the prison house of and proclaim that the justice of God was in fact fully served when those multitudes perished, when God judged the sin of man on earth the first time. It's a very real possibility of that if you compare Scripture with Scripture because the ark of Noah, in fact prefigured the ark that is Jesus himself. It's not like me to agree with almost anything that our across-the-street neighbors would say, but they have one thing right. When they refer to the faith they hold as being the ark, I don't agree with the fact that you must become a Jehovah Witness in order to find refuge from the wrath to come, But Peter is saying, as he brings up this issue of the Ark of Noah, we know that it prefigured the Ark that is Jesus himself. He, the only safe refuge from the ultimate and last judgment to come. And Peter says, not this time by water, but this next time by fire. And We read those verses together. Perhaps that divine visit, To hell itself, as it were, was to fully vindicate the prophetic ministry of Noah, the man who God called the preacher of righteousness. And then Peter draws the vital link between that shadow of redemption when Noah's elect family was spared, eight of them, and draws the link to the fulfillment of redemption when Jesus died for sinners. I'll remind you, it was Noah, not a perfect man. He proved it. It's recorded. He was a sinner as we all are. But Noah, the Bible says, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I want to say that salvation, whether it be Old Testament shadow or New Testament substance, is always a salvation by grace alone. God only ever had one plan to save sinners, and it was always by grace. Now, the believer's baptism referenced here in this difficult text, verse 21, does indeed point To one's salvation, not because the water itself saves or can wash us clean from our sins, but because Peter knows that baptism is the outward sign of an inward reality. Peter, I believe, assumes in this text that he is writing to baptized believers. And that they are true believers. And in that sense, the outward sign of union with Christ speaks to their immersion into Christ's death, His burial, and His resurrection. Your baptism, Peter does say, saves you in the sense of what it represents. And it can only represent the life, the burial, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gospel. But many understand this, the untaught, who do not compare Scripture with Scripture. Some deliberately twist it. But this baptism into water testifies to salvation. So when Peter says, by which, uh, by which baptism saves you, he's not pointing, of course, to the substance of water, but rather to the precious blood of Christ, which, by the way, he has already so powerfully and clearly declared in the first chapters and verses of this same epistle. I was thinking about how the Lord's Supper that's the second of two ordinances, is also interpreted in a variety of different ways. And you know this. For example, I recall in the course of serving uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper, the broken bread, the cup of uh, wine, uh, and holding a communion service some years ago, a lady came up to me, was part of our fellowship then, and she was from a background that insisted that I had added words to what the Bible actually said when it came time to eat the bread and drink the cup. And she sat for an hour or more in my study and we had a friendly debate. And guess what? She won. She says, the next time you're at the table, Pastor, and you say to the people as you hold up the bread, you should say what Jesus said. And I thought, Well, I'm not going to be able to wiggle out of that one. Jesus said as he broke the bread. What did he say, folks? He said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. And now then for centuries of debate and even denominational division. Does the bread transubstantiate? Does it actually become human flesh, the flesh of the divine Lamb of God? When we take the cup and we drink it, before it reaches our inner parts, as it goes down our throats, does it change to become actual human blood, the blood of the divine, the Lamb of God? Some that would translate scripture By another good rule, so literally could argue a doctrine of transubstantiation. We don't hold to it. Because comparing Scripture with Scripture, it is clear that when Jesus said, This is my body, it was like a Sunday school teacher saying, See this object. This is going to represent to us, boys and girls, Jesus, who is the living water. This Is the living water, having explained how I will use the object. We know that that Sunday school teacher does not mean that the glass contains some substance of Christ, frankly, any more than the bread or the cup do. And when Peter says your baptism saves you, it's the same issue. In fact, he seems to want to clarify it because he says, I'm not so much talking about the water. I'm not talking about the water. I'm not talking about that which would cleanse only and can only cleanse flesh. I'm talking about the gospel which I have already proclaimed. Now, we need to move on. I see in Peter's admittedly difficult text, I see the cross work of Jesus. And I see the interpretive principle as Peter interprets that the cross work of Jesus reaches all the way back to the days of Noah. Actually, the cross work of Jesus reaches all the way back to our first parents. It was not coincidence that after Adam and Eve had disobeyed their Creator, that God is seen taking the blood of innocent animals. And providing in their coats a covering for Adam and Eve. The making of our own righteousness, the fig leaves of our good works, are no adequate covering. It must be by blood. The scripture says in both the Old and the New Testament, for without the shedding of blood... There can be no remission of sin. It's one story. It's one truth. And if we'll remain consistent, we're not going to stumble over a verse that says baptism saves you just in one place. The very Christ of Calvary went and proclaimed, as he always proclaims everywhere, it had to be truth that he proclaimed. I believe it was the truth concerning justice to those who had rejected Noah's preaching. And I say, that same Jesus who went wherever that was, to whoever those souls were, to whatever He proclaimed, this I do know with absolute certainty, that same Jesus is coming again. And on the left hand, He will speak judgment to those who have rejected the Gospel, just as He brought judgment to those who wouldn't get on the boat. And on the right hand, He will gather those who by faith, Immerse themselves not in water, but in the righteousness of God in Christ. And if we're right about this, then let me just say to every single one of you, you want to be at the right hand of Jesus. Now, because this text is shadowy, somewhat mysterious, Just plain difficult, there are other interpretations. Some are worthy of consideration. Others, as I've already mentioned, build false notions of things like baptismal regeneration. That is, to get saved, you must be baptized. Well, I say, tell that to the repenting thief on the cross who didn't have time to get baptized. Others build a doctrine that says, Jesus... Visited hell to give people a second chance. I've never met any of those folks in the course of my Christian life and ministry, but I know they're out there and I've read some of the literature. And some are still hoping and teach in the doctrine of last things that there's going to be a second chance for those who have rejected Christ the first time. There's next to no biblical ground, even if it would be our well-intentioned hope for some. Some say the spirits he spoke to were not so much people as the fallen angels. It's part of the text. Did Jesus go to the prison and speak to spirits, demons? Did he demonstrate and proclaim what Satan by then already knew, that his head was crushed? But dear friends, (laughs) While the passage may be among the most difficult to understand, I say to you that regardless of differing interpretations, one thing is unmistakably true, and it is a glorious truth indeed. Notice it right where we are. All that Peter says follows his proclamation of an absolutely clear, easily understood gospel of grace in Christ. I take you back to verse 18. The immediate, preceding, context. Another important rule for interpreting Scripture as best we can. And when you come back to verse 18, can there be a more concise, understandable Statement of glorious truth. Christ died for sins once for all. I've always loved that phrase because that means not only my past sins, those I committed before I came to Christ, but the sins of yesterday and my sins this morning, which, by the way, I did commit and confess. And by the time I get home, we'll have to Confess some more, I am sure. But also, all the sins of Monday yet to come. Oh, I'm not looking forward to disobedience in any way. It's just that I know enough to know that I am not perfect yet. Neither are you. Neither was Paul. I've not already attained. But you see, Christ died for sins once for all. That is, he died once for past, present, and tomorrow, and the next day's sins until Jesus comes. What was this? Well, this was a substitutionary atonement. That's big words for the theologian. But Peter keeps it simple. He is a fisherman after all. Look, he says, it was the just for the unjust. It was a holy one dying for unholy people. And it had one basic purpose. So that he might bring us to God. That's why you can share the gospel with others. It's not that complicated. Christ... Died for sins once for all. It was the just for the unjust, that's us, so that he might bring us to God. Now, beloved, whatever else you take away from this sermon, poorly preached perhaps, but whatever else you hear, hear this. You are a sinner. And that fact separates you from God and destines you for a prison called hell. Unless, unless you embrace for yourself the fact that Christ, who was perfectly holy and just, died for you, the unjust, in order to bring you to God. And there is no other way to get there. We've asked some questions of the text. And raise the difficult issues. But there are other questions that are just as vital. And I'm just not going to let you go home till I get to ask them of you. How about you? It's not your religious upbringing or whatever church you may have joined or being a member of this one. And it is most clearly not your water baptism. I know in my heart as God himself is my witness that I have baptized people that never really did truly believe in Christ. It grieves me to say that. I couldn't see the heart but God does. And it's not water baptism neither saves nor really condemns. It is not your good works, your good intentions or your ability to say 10 times a week I'm a good person. It takes a just man, a no less than perfect man, Jesus alone to bear your sins in his own body on the cross, so that in rising again, he can take you to heaven. Having by his death, destroyed death itself. So what about this matter, this is for those of you that really pay attention What about this matter of a toothless lion? Maybe there's two that have been waiting for this explanation because you didn't read the bulletin. And you'll notice that that is my sermon title for this portion of scripture. The toothless lion. Where in the world did you get that, Pastor? Well, in my defense, let me just say, some things are hard to understand. And I'm one of them. But verse 20 makes this fact clear. I want you to look at it. Jesus has, Peter says, now gone into heaven, but did so only after, look at the text, angels, I believe this is a reference to fallen angels, the demons, and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, this lends support to the fact that what he proclaimed in that prison place was also a message to every evil power in hell itself. Basically, what Jesus was saying, perhaps in the period of time that his body lay in a tomb, and he went to this place wherever it is and proclaimed to whoever it was whatever he proclaimed i think he was saying you are done for i think he was following through on that cry from the cross when he said it is finished I think he's saying to every evil spirit, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the power of sin for those who believe in me. I have crushed the serpent's head and all power and all authority is in my hand. Which is why Paul would write later in Romans 8, there's nothing created, there's no authority, there's no power, there's no circumstance of life. There is nothing that can separate you from my love. I believe this is the victory that Christ declares, and certainly he has by his resurrection. Pastor, you still haven't explained the toothless lion. Well, I get this from Peter. That's good, isn't it? Glance over at chapter 5. I'll let you go soon. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look down at verse 8. We'll preach this someday, soon. Peter says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Oh, this will send a chill, wouldn't it? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. Verse 10 After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Boy, I'm glad that last part follows the first part when I'm hearing all about a hungry, roaring lion who wants to just eat me up. Christ himself will complete what he started, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why? Because as we saw in our text, that all such evil authorities are in fact now under Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Satan is fearsome. In Ephesians 6, we've got multitudinous pieces of armor to put on. Sometimes he has been so near to me in my life, I thought I could smell the stench of hell on his breath. But I can say I've only been badly gummed. This is a toothless lion. As Jesus said to Peter, He also says to us, Satan has desire. Well, First Peter says he's looking for someone to eat up. Doesn't mean he gets to. Not if they're God's children. And he said to Peter, Satan has desire to sift you like wheat. But but but. And as long as it's Jesus speaking, I love to hear the but. I have prayed for you. What? That your faith fail not. Apparently, this is a toothless roaring lion. Peter's faith didn't fail. Neither will ours, whose whole trust is in Jesus. By the way, there's another lion. Sometimes known to us as the lion of Judah. And I just want to say, he has all of his teeth. Listen, if you are a child of God, whatever else this text means, I know it means this much and I preach it dogmatically. Satan could no longer destroy you than he could drag Christ himself down to hell. And that ain't going to happen. Isn't it wonderful? That even a passage which can be hard to understand, a passage for which there are even a number of differing and some worthy interpretations... That such a hard-to-understand portion here and there can be so wrapped up in the gospel itself that the saint can say, I may not understand it all, but this I know, my Redeemer lives and so shall I. My Redeemer lives and neither my sin nor Satan and his host of demons shall have dominion over me. Because Christ, through his resurrection, declared absolute authority over every evil thing, including my many sins. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. someone says amen, we'll be able to go. Stand together with me, please. I've imposed an additional five minutes. I'm not going to prolong that. I'm going to ask the instruments, if they would, to play the tune of the familiar hymn at 418. We'll not sing it, but let me give you the words that I think really count. My faith, has found a resting place. And it's not in device nor creed. I trust. Do you? I hope you can say, I trust the ever-living One. It's His wounds for me that plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. I don't even have to understand it all. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me.